Acts chapter 16. We're going we're gonna to get to that in just a little bit. Acts chapter 16. We're really going to be doing an intro this morning. Uh, we're going to do the, the uh, launching a new series. So I've been praying about this for a couple of months, preparing for this. And so we're, we're going to launch into a series called Joy Unspeakable. Joy Unspeakable. And I can guess most of you, if you know the Word of God, you can guess where I'm going. You can guess the book I'm going to be preaching through. We're going to the book of Philippians. We're going to be taking a journey through Philippians. And, and you, you, you know, most of you are going to re- understand this, that the book of Philippians is often referred to as the joy book. It's the book about joy. And so we're going to look at that. that so this morning, we're, that's the, the, where we're going to be with our introduction. But uh, turn to Acts chapter 16. You can also um, look in your Bibles. A lot of your Bibles in the va- very back will have some, some maps. And if you have maps in there, you can actually pull up a map on Paul's missionary journeys, and, and most of them will have that. It'll just If you want to find that and turn to that, we're actually going to put those pictures up here in a moment uh, as I talk through this a little bit so you can follow along. But if you have it in your book, it may be a little easier to follow. Uh, and so I'm going to turn to mine. might be a little easier for me as well from, from that. All right, so... Uh, the first verse I want to read is this. We're talking about joy unspeakable. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Peter said this. He says, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing. Now he's talking about salvation. And he's speaking of the Lord Jesus. And he's talking about this, 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 uh, this person, this Jesus, that we haven't seen and yet we love. In whom though we, we, we now, even right now, we don't see him, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And that's where, that's where when we have a relationship with Christ, we can have that joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so that's what we're going to look at. So when we think of joy unspeakable, we think of Paul's letter to Philippians. That, that would be most people, if you said, where would you go in Scripture to learn about joy? We would go to the book of Philippians. This morning we're beginning our journey through Philippians, but first let's see how Paul got to Philippi, and then we'll learn about that city, and we'll learn about his experiences there. We need to understand kind of Paul's journey there. We need to understand a little bit about the city, and we need to understand what went on in Philippi before we, then we can look at later when he's writing a letter to them, you know, the things that he's talking about. So Paul's journey to Philippi, let's just stop right there. I want to have a word of prayer. Uh, I still hear pages turning, and I love it. I'm glad. I love to hear the pages turning. And, uh, but let's have a word of prayer as we launch into this. Father, thank you again for um, this morning and the time to be here. Lord, I thank you for each one that's here. Uh, our, our regular members, our visitors this morning, these, these precious guests, they could have been anywhere today, yet they've chosen to come and to worship with us. And I thank you for that, Lord. I pray you bless them in a very special way. Bless, bless all of those that are visiting with us today. And uh, Lord, as we turn to your word now, I just ask that you would uh, give me wisdom. Uh, Lord, you've You've prepared this message in me, and I pray now that as I present it, God, I'll present it as you would have, have me, and you would guide my thoughts even now and my speech, Lord. And don't allow me to say anything outside your will. And Lord, if there's anything that you'd have me to share, then I pray you'll bring it to my mind. But Lord, I pray you'll bless and use this message this morning uh, to stir our hearts, prepare us for the journey we're about to set out on. But uh, also, Lord, that it will speak to us even today about the joy that we can have with you. So bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the background uh, of this book of Philippians, it's this. So Paul and Barnabas, who had, had been on one missionary journey together, they'd come back. And as they returned from that first missionary journey, uh, they, they went to Jerusalem and they went to the Jerusalem council. And as they returned from the Jerusalem council with the council's decisive ruling that Gentile believers did not have to be circumcised or adopt Jewish customs in order to be saved. That was the whole purpose of that council there in Jerusalem. There were the Judaizers said, you have to do this. You've got, basically, you've got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Well, let me just say, for, from my perspective, amen and amen that we don't have to follow that today. Amen that we don't have to be, you know, we don't have to go as adults and be circumcised in order to become a, you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. We don't have to do that. And that was what was settled right there. And when that happened, this was a watershed moment that gave Gentile evangelism a great liberating boost. Because this was, this was, look, we, they can now go to the Gentiles. They don't have to worry with all of us trying to bring them in to be, to be Jews, to be, become proselytes and follow Judaism in order to become a believer and a Christian. 
So Paul and Barnabas, they go out and, and uh, they've come to this. They come back from the council and now they're about to set out on the second missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas, they part here. They part ways. And this was all over John Mark who had abandoned them in the first. He, he had left them in the first, uh, on their first journey. Paul wasn't going to have any part of him going back again. That's a whole different story. But that was the reason they separated. But they separate. Paul and Barnabas separate. And Paul then takes Silas with him and, he, and they set out on the second journey. If you want to write some notes on this. You could go back to Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, kind of deal with this part of this. Timothy then, when they get to Lystra, they get to Lystra, Timothy is going to join in into that. Now, if you look at, let's go to the map. Let's go to the map, the next, the first slide. All right, so you see Lystra in the, in the Galatia, in the green area, kind of in the middle, top half of the middle. Uh, right in the middle of that green part, lower part of the green part there is Lystra. How many of you, can you see that from the back? Can you read that? All right, hopefully you've, you've got a map there. But kind of in the middle there in, in that green area is Galatia. And, and as they went in there, the middle of that in the lower part is a town called Lystra. And that's where Timothy joined in, in this party. And Timothy goes with them now. Now, Paul's plan was to retrace the steps of his first missionary journey and, and encourage the churches that had been started. And then as they traveled west, he attempted to go to Asia. Now, if you see the, the big red area, kind of right in the middle, upper left, little bit of, the, of there is, is Asia. All of that, and, and that is the, the western half. Really, all of that is t- what is modern-day Turkey is what we're talking about. And so that western part of what is modern-day Turkey in the, in the pink there and the red is Asia. And all of that, you see, if, if you can see that, you see that those, those churches there are the churches from, from, from uh, Revelation, the churches that were written to from Revelation. Those are churches that are, that are planted by Paul and, in, in missionary journeys. But he wanted to go into that area, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go south. And he's pushing him west. And then he tried to go north into that, into that lighter green area, Bithynia. And that would have, Paul's idea was, I'm going to go north and I'm going to go up into Europe. That was his desire, was to go up into there. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go that way either. So as they're moving west, really, as I was, was, even as I was reading this morning, I was kind of thinking about the Holy Spirit's guiding and how the inspired writings, we know that they are inspired. Every word of God is God-breathed. And we talk about that as breath. He guides them. He gives them the words to say. It's as though the author is there with a pen and he's here behind them telling them as he looks over the shoulder, telling them what to write. And this is what they're doing. And Paul's like, I want to go into Asia. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. He's pushing him a little further north. And he's like, well, I want to go into Bithynia. And he, the Holy Spirit's keeping him from going north. So as, as he's, he can't go south and he can't go north and the Holy Spirit's pushing him west, he obviously knows, well, then I'm just going to, he continues to make his way over and they come to Troas. And so that's where we find them. So um, they're driven west to Troas, and, and it's at this point that Luke, Dr. Luke, as we know, who wrote the book of Luke, Luke is going to join them at that, this point. And so now they have a four-person ministry team. I think there's, I mean, there's something to learn from that right there when we talk about missions. Missions ought to be team. Ministry ought to be team. Paul never, we think of Paul the missionary, and sometimes we have in our mind, Paul's out there on the journeys all by himself. You never find Paul by himself. Never. He's always partnering with others. He's ministering with others. There's a team there. And now he's got this dynamic team of these four men that are, that are traveling. And so they're there at Troas, and Paul has a vision. And if you're there in chapter 16 of Acts, you'll, you'll look in verse 9. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And we know this as the Macedonian call. This was this man that he saw in a vision. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Macedonia, including, uh, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they, Paul sees the vision, and in an instant, one of the greatest turning points in history is Paul and this team made a two-day journey to cross over the waters there, and they go into Neapolis, and, and then they walk from Neapolis. You see there as they cross the, the, the waters there, they Samothrace. And then they go into Neapolis up there in the, in the upper left-hand corner, that orange area of Macedonia. They're now, they're now in Europe. That's Europe. And they come into there. They come into Neapolis. And from there, at that port city, then they, they, take, they take the journey. It's about a nine-mile walk as they go from Neapolis up to Philippi. And that's where we're going to find them. And, and so they make that nine-mile walk up to Philippi. Now, R- Rome didn't know it. Rome didn't know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire that day. 
on that day as, as, as the gospel went into Europe that day. Philippi wasn't a big city, no more than about 10,000 people at most, and it rested on a narrow shoulder of land on the Via Ignatia. And this, this road, this Via Ignatia, is, it's a famous highway between Rome and her eastern empire. And so it was a famous road, a lot of traffic through there. Philippi had been, it had been founded by Greeks in the 4th century B.C., um, uh, Philip of Macedonia, who is the father of Alexander the Great, he named it. He founded the city, named the city for himself. That's the, where we get the name Philippi, was from, from Alexander the Great's father. But now it was a Roman colony. At this point, it's a Roman colony because in 42 B.C., Philippi was where Mark Anthony and Octavian, or Augustus, fought with the armies of Brutus and Cassius, who you'll remember from, from, from your history. They were the assassins of Julius Caesar. And, and there, Anthony and Augustus, they defeated Cassius. And so later in 31 B.C., when Augustus defeated Mark Anthony in the Battle of Actium, Augustus renamed the colony after himself, and he named it Colonia Julia Augusta Philippensis. What, that's a great name, and, and Philippi is a lot better name. Philippi, I mean, that's a long name. That's longer than Conrad Westbrook. That's just, I'd hate to have that as my email address, Conrad at that city. Um, crazy. So as a Roman town, and when we think about Philippi now, Rome, it's a Roman town, so it was governed by Roman law. Roman law is, is the law of the land there. It's filled with Roman expatriates. So there, there are many of the, in fact, many of the people who are soldiers, a lot of the soldiers, when they got out of the military, they left them there. They stayed there and they made their homes there. Uh, but it was filled with Roman expatriates. It, Latin was the official language. The citizens wore Roman dress. So it, it, it has a, a very much a feel of Rome. Even the public inscriptions in the forum and on all the buildings were exclusively in Latin. So when you go into Philippi, you would, you would definitely know that you were in a Roman city. This was not, there was no question about whose city that was and who was in charge. It was a, it was a city of Rome. So the leadership and aristocracy of Philippi was completely Roman and Latin. This created this, this uh, a Greek-speaking underclass that made up the local population. So that's what you have is the, the leadership and the aristocracy there were all Roman and they spoke Latin, but you had, you had other citizens there. You had this subculture, these Greek-speaking people who made up the population. And they're the construction workers and the tradesmen and the work merchants who were in and out of there and doing business there, and they were the, the working class. And it was to this social class that Paul initially went when he came into the city. Now, understand, this is around A.D. 50 to 52, okay? So um, you're talking about, about 20 years after the Lord's resurrection, somewhere about 20 years. So 50 to 52, somewhere in there is when he's arriving. Now, what Paul did when he went into a new city, his custom was, as he entered into the city, was go to, first to go to the Jews, well, if you're going to go into a city and go to see the Jews and talk to the Jews, where would you go? You'd go to a synagogue, right? That's where you would go. So he gets into Philippi, and what he finds is there's no synagogue there in Philippi, which tells us there aren't a lot of Jews in Philippi because you would have to have a minimum. And this doesn't seem like a lot, but they didn't even have enough to do this, but you had to have 10 men that were Jewish men in order to start a synagogue in that location. They didn't even have enough men, Jewish men, in the city there in Philippi to start a synagogue. So, um, so there just weren't that, that many Jews. He couldn't, there was no synagogue formed. So Paul is, is looking around. He's, 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 he's just trying to find places to minister, who to, who to go to talk to. And so it takes a, little, a couple of days, but he discovered a group of women that were meeting alongside a river outside the city walls, and they were meeting, they were gathering together to pray on the Sabbath. Acts 16, if you're there in chapter 16, look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met, who, who, uh, met there. So they, they heard about this prayer meeting. Now, I'm sure Paul's asking around, who, where do people go? You know, where do people gather to worship? Different things. He's asking. He's asked these questions. And someone says, well, there's some ladies that meet out there by the river. So they go out on the Sabbath, and they find these ladies that are there praying. And Paul and his team begin to talk to them. Now, it's interesting. And um, uh, so the, the, the first woman that he meets there is Lydia. Now, a certain, verse 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. 
who worshiped God. The, the, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by God. Now, that's a fancy way to say that she listened to Paul and she responded to Paul's message. Paul preached the gospel. She responded to the gospel. We understand Lydia became a believer right there that day by that river. Uh, you know, the, the Holy Spirit had already been preparing her heart already been speaking to her. And she heard the gospel and she responded that day. She heeded to those things. And so I read one of the commentators said that the man in the Macedonian vision turned out to be a woman. Isn't that interesting? That, and I never thought about that. But the first person that Paul witnessed to and led to the Lord, the first person he witnessed to, according to this, we don't know. He may have witnessed to 100 people before that. But he witnessed to Lydia. We know. We hear that. We read that. And he witnesses and shares the gospel with her, and she responds and receives Christ as her Savior. And, 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 and she's changed instantly, verse 15. And when she and her household were baptized. So not only that, but you see the testimony, you see the power of a changed life. Instantly she, she trusts the Lord. They go back to her house, and Paul and the team are witnessing to the family. And many, if not all, in her household came to be believers that day, and they were baptized. She begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So they were going to stay there in her. She was going to provide for them. She was obviously a wealthy woman. She was a businesswoman. And um, interesting side note, that's my brain works. I still, when I think of Lydia, you know what I think of. I think of my daughter at some point going to a, a fall festival or something. They were supposed to dress up. And so she's got all this purple clothing and stuff on, and she went as Lydia, a seller of purple. So she had all the purple stuff. So that's who she went as, is Lydia. And so it, it, we think about that. Soon as now we see the Holy Spirit working, Paul's there in Philippi. Nobody cares that Paul's witnessing. Nobody cares that Paul's doing anything. Nobody gives, a, gives him any bit of attention until... Until, until things happen that start to cost money. Look what's happened. Spiritual opposition followed immediately in the form of a girl who had a spirit of divination. And, and verse 16, literally, that, that divination, it, it's, it's literally a, a pythonic spirit. Python, like a snake, a pythonic spirit. And it's referencing demon control. So she was a demon-controlled, demon-possessed girl who, who, who apparently... She, she, she made her, well, let's read, read verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who, bought, who brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. So she's, she's in the fortune telling business and she is demon filled. She's demon possessed and she's following them around. In the, and and as, they're, as they're traveling through the sea, she's following them around. This was Satan's attempt to try to squash what Paul was doing. She's proclaiming, but she's speaking truth. And she says, she says, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she's speaking truth. But the idea is she's trying to, and I don't fully understand this idea, but she's trying to co-op them. She's trying to latch on with them and discredit them because of, because of who she is. She's trying to destroy what God's doing through them in Philippi right there first thing. And so this goes on for a while and Paul, he's had enough of it. So she's loud and she's incessant as she's heralding this truth about them. She's trying to destroy the gospel. At least that's Satan's plan. I don't think she really was aware of what she was doing. Verse 18 then says, And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So he... he, he he exercises that spirit, gets that spirit, casts that spirit out of her. Paul speaks to her and does that. Now, here's what happens. Imagine what happens if somebody's making money off a fortune teller who can't tell fortunes now. So, so she, she can't tell fortunes. She's no longer possessed. She's been freed of that demonic spirit. She no longer, she's no longer valuable to those who own her. She's a slave to, the, to, to whoever they, they are. And uh, we see what happens. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews, all right, that's racist. You know, they're, gonna, they're playing on the racial divides there. They exceedingly trouble our city. Did they exceedingly trouble the city? No, they didn't exceedingly trouble the city. They exceedingly troubled them. Paul exceedingly troubled them because it's hurt their pocketbook. If you read through Scripture, we find again and again and again, when the gospel goes forth, what happens? Vices 
stop. Vices stop. And then what happens? People whose pocketbooks are affected start to get upset. That's when we saw the silversmith. You remember the silversmith? They all, they, they, that was the first labor union. They all got together. They threw a fit. They were mad because nobody was buying their little, their little trinkets anymore, their little idols that they created. And, and every time the gospel goes forward, listen, we get out of our vices when we get right with God. But he cast that demon out. And, uh, but it's the same lies that go on today. It goes on today. When, when the gospel starts impacting people's lives and they start changing and affect someone, then they get upset. Verse 21. And they, and they teach, they're, they're still making accusations now against Paul. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, and we, we know that this would have been, their custom would have been 40 minus 1, so it would have been 39 stripes, because if they went over the 40, they would get lashed themselves. So they would never go to 40. They would go to 30. They'd go to 40 minus 1 because they wanted to make sure they didn't go over and end up getting, getting a beating themselves. So it would have been 39 lashes with a rod. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, it's pretty interesting. It doesn't seem like they got taken to a court. They didn't get tried. They didn't get to defend themselves. They didn't get to state their side of it or anything. They get accusations made in the public square. They just strip their clothes off, and they beat them with rods, and they throw them in prison. They're beaten and thrown into prison. Verse 24, having received... Such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stock. So this, this prison, this jailer that's at the prison, he takes them and he throws them to the inner prison. He doesn't just put them in some cell. They've said, they've said keep them securely. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to keep them securely because whatever happens with them could happen to, the, to him. So he's, he puts them in the inner prison, the darkest part of the dungeon of that prison, whatever it was. And I can imagine it wasn't anything like the prisons today. This would have actually been hellish and they shackle them, they shackle them there to the walls. They're shackled in this prison. Verse 25, and now we start to see the first inkling of Paul's, Paul's joy. We see, we see this. Look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. It, 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 there's times where uh, you say you have a captive audience. Paul and Silas had a captive audience. And, and, you know, Paul, I'll just say this here. Paul understood. He trusted the Lord. I'll talk about this later. But he just trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He, he's not now going, Silas. Can you believe it? Why would God let us get thrown into prison? Why would he let us get me? We're just sharing the gospel. We're just doing good works. That's what we'd do. Most of us, uh, me, let me just say me. I ain't going to speak for you, but most of us would. We'd just be whining about our situation instead of praising God because they came there wanting to share the gospel. And what do they've got? They've got captive. They've got people who can't go nowhere. They can't get up and walk out of the service. I don't like what you're saying. And leave. No, they're shackled in the prison. So they're there and, and they've got this, and, but they're listening. The prisoners are listening. This is, this is midnight. And so long before the letter to the Philippians, we see Paul's joy in spite of the circumstances. They're singing praises to God. Now, what kind of impact do you think that makes? When Pete, they've seen it, they know what's they talk, they know what's going on. They're not, they don't sit around on their phones all day. What's going on in the world? I don't know. So they're not doing that. They, they know every jailer knew what had gone on. That prison guard knew what had gone on. He was very aware of the accusations against them. He was very aware. They were all very aware that Paul and Silas had been beaten and now they're in the inner part of the prison and they're shackled and they ought to hear them crying. And the prison guard, he might have been thinking, eh, this will be another night. They'll be in there whining and crying all night. They're not crying. Everybody's hearing them and they're praising the Lord. They're praising through song. They're singing these hymns and they're praying. And you can imagine their prayers as they preach the gospel through their prayers. Amen? You just know they're sharing the gospel in everything that they're doing. 
Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. Wow, what an amazing circumstantial situation, huh? That's what people would say. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just, wow, the timing on that is just amazing. Yeah, the timing is amazing because God did this. Suddenly, and the Holy Spirit could have just said, suddenly God sent a great earthquake because that's exactly what happened. There was a great earthquake that, that, uh, so that the foundations of the prison were shaking and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosened. Wow, isn't, isn't that pretty? That's an amazing circumstance. That's just crazy. An earthquake took all the shackles and they just fell off. Man, God is good. Shakes the foundation. The doors of the prison all open. All the shackles just come loose. Now, what do you think would happen when that, when that would happen? You'd think everybody would just run out, right? All those hardened criminals in there or whatever, they'd be like, uh, doors open, uh, the shackles are gone. I ain't sticking around. Bam. Nobody went anywhere. And I believe, again, that's God. That's the Holy Spirit. Because then we'll look what happens. Verse 27. And the keeper of the prison... Wakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, we don't, we don't read in here that Paul and Silas can see the prisoner. They, they don't see him. I, I, I don't gather that they see him. That Wherever they're at in the inner part, but they, God is revealing to them. They know what's going on. And as he comes out, and you can imagine, because you understand again, if the prisoners escaped, he's going to pay the price. He's going to pray the price. He could pray, pay with his life. And he imagines they're either going to throw me in the dungeon, I'll never see light of day again, or they're going to kill me, and I don't want to die the way they would kill me. So he draws his sword. He's going, to, he's going to take his own life. And Paul, but Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Can you imagine that guy? He's about to take the sword. How could this guy who can't even see me know what I'm thinking and what I'm about to do? God was working all in this situation. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before, before Paul and Silas. He was blown away with everything he's just witnessed. He's heard the gospel. He's heard them praying. He's heard them singing. Now this earthquake happens. All the doors fly open. All the chains come off, and no one has fled. And Paul speaks and says, don't do yourself any harm. We haven't gone anywhere. We're all here. So he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now that's the, that's the question everyone wants the, the, the answer to, and it's the question everyone wants to ask, and it's the wrong question. What must I do? Can I run a hundred laps around the church? Can I do a billion push-ups? What does it take for me to go to heaven? Do I have to, can I go walk, you know, old, old ladies across the street in the, in the tr busy traffic? What must I do to be saved? And here we see the gospel right here, verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Folks, it's that simple. You believe. You place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding your lostness, your hopelessness, and that only through Jesus we can, we can be born again. We can be saved and forgiven of our sin. And so when we, when we come to that place that we would confess our sin and believe on Jesus, the Bible says you're saved. You and your household. They knew this would change. If this man gets saved, his whole family is going to impact his whole family. So they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them to, in the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. This man trusted Christ. This man's family trusted Christ. Paul's been in the city a very short time. A very short time. And he has Lydia and all of her family and perhaps others that were there at the river. But Lydia certainly and her family have come to faith. He's cast the demon out of this, this girl, this slave girl. And we don't see it, but very possibly she came to faith in Christ. Now we have the Philippian jailer who has come to faith in Christ. And his family, many in his household, have come to faith in Christ. We have a church. Paul's been there very little time. And we have a church that is blossoming right here in Philippi. Verse 34. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer, saying, Let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, 
The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly. I love that Paul handled this this way. People want to talk about we as Christians, we should just do whatever. We should just be passive, let everybody do whatever they want to do. We should turn the other cheek. But Paul absolutely exercised his rights as a Roman citizen right here. Now, he didn't. He could have stepped up and said before they ever laid a strike on him, could have, could have said, hey, you need you to be aware we're Roman citizens. He didn't because he trusted God in that situation. All I can figure is God told him to keep his mouth shut right now. You will have time to deal with this later. You just listen. And, and so he tells them that, that they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, they, and, and now do they put us uh, out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. When they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and, and, and asked them to, they, they wanted them to leave before. It was kind of like telling them to get out of town. Uh, now they, they're, they're asking them. They asked them really nicely, like, would y'all please just go somewhere else? Uh, we don't want the problem. So they asked them to leave the city. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they enc encouraged them and departed. Already there's, there's a church meeting. They're gathering together. He gets them together. He meets with them. This is incredible. And this is, this is, this is the, the majority of what we know about Philippi. This is what we know of the city. This is what we know of what went on there in the city of Philippi, in Paul's ministry there. But there is a church that is planted, a church that is started, and they're going to leave. And the flag of the gospel had been raised on a new continent, and the, and the first church was birthed in Europe in the, in the empire of Rome right there. Paul completed. Now, now from there, he's going to go on down, and, and if, if you can see it there, he's going, to, he's going to head on south. He's going to go through Athens. He's going to go through Corinth. He's going to make his way over to Ephesus. He spends quite a bit of time in Ephesus, and then he goes back into Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, and then back up to Damascus and to Antioch. That's the second journey. So he's going to complete the second journey several years later, uh, returning up to Antioch. We later, he later sets out on a third missionary journey, and, and, it, and we, we, during that time, we'll look at the next slide. You'll see, you, you, if you can track it, if you've got it in your book, uh, you'll see that he actually he makes his way back up there He's actually going to go through Philippi, make his way around. He's going to come back through Philippi another time. So all told, three times in that time period, three times he's been through Philippi. We read from this right here. We don't, we don't know exactly how long that was. It wasn't long. It wasn't long at all that he was in Philippi. And, and these other visits that he made were all very brief times through there. That's going to be significant as we talk more later going forward about his relationship with Philippi. Because what I want you to understand right now, it wasn't like with Ephesus where he spent years there. He didn't spend years in, in Philippi. He spent maybe months, maybe weeks. But he wasn't there long. But God used him in, a, in an incredible way in that time. So he later sets out on his third missionary journey, and he makes a couple more visits to Philippi, and that's around 55 to 57. So we're talking about five years' time. 50 to 52, he's there. Then 55 to 57, he's there again. Five years or so in between those. And then Paul returns to Jerusalem, and it's there after that third missionary journey that he's falsely accused. And he's, jail, he's jailed there uh, in Jerusalem. And then he spends two years imprisoned. And then he appeals to Caesar. He wants to be sent to Caesar. He wants to be sent to Rome. So he is sent to Rome to stand before Caesar. And we fast forward to AD 60, 62. So it's another five years or so. And we find that Paul is in house arrest in Rome. That's where we come to. And it's here that, that he, he's going to write this letter to the Philippians. He's sitting in Rome, in house arrest. And so you, 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 at this point, it's about 10 years between his first visit to Philippi and him sitting in there to write the letter. So now you've got the background on this as he's sitting there to write this letter to the Philippians. Now, the book of Philippians is known as the joy book, and it's known that for good reason. For, for good reason. This book is saturated with words joy, rejoice, rejoicing, gladness, that's a word that's in there. And, and there's at least 15 such references in these four short chapters. So it's a book that just flows. Man, the joy over and over, it just flows out of, of this letter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all, with joy I rejoice. Verse 18, he says, 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And this, and in this, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. Mm, I, do you think Paul's got full of joy? I, I think he is. Chapter 2, verse 18, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. I'm rejoicing. You need to be glad. You need to be rejoicing with me. 3-1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 4-4, four, four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That, that, he's an exclamation. Uh, ver, verse 10 there in chapter 4, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. We see it again and again and again and again. Chapter after chapter, joy flows off of every page in various forms and for various reasons that we're going to look at. It wasn't, boy, life must have been great. So it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, how did Paul do it? How did Paul, how did Paul live in a constant state of joy? Was he some kind of super saint with a faith that made that was made of different stuff than the rest of us? I mean, it makes you wonder, was Paul, I mean, when God saved Paul, did he just give him more faith than he gave us? Is, is he different than us? He's not, folks. You gotta understand. Paul is a man. He's a man. He's, a, he's no different than any man in this room, any woman in this room. He's, no, he's just like us. We ask the question, you know, did he live in a constant state of denial then? You know, maybe he wasn't a super Christian, but maybe he was just in denial. Maybe he's like just denied that the bad things were going on. No? Or, or did he live uh, such a problem-free life that, that to be sad and depressed or in despair never occurred to him? Because, man, life's just wonderful. I mean, it's just great all the time. Well, if there's one thing that, that is true about the Apostle Paul is that his life was not easy. Paul lived almost every day of his life in mortal danger and physical pain. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22 and 20 through 27, we read as Paul himself sums up the realities of his life as an apostle. In verse 23, he said, "...in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure." In prisons more frequently. Well, we already saw in Philippi, first city goes into in, 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 in uh, Europe there, first city, and he's already been beaten with 39 stripes. He's already been thrown into prison. He's been wrong, wrongly in prison, wrongly judged. All of that in that first visit there. In deaths often from the Jews five times. That was just one of them. But five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I think Paul was in perils. I think Paul was facing a whole lot of problems everywhere he went. Verse 27, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. All these things were not enough. Paul also suffered from some, some physical ailment that he called a thorn in the flesh. He had something that was his thorn in the flesh. He talked about it and he prayed it be removed. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. But it tormented him every day of his life. Finally, according to church history, Emperor Nero killed Paul by cutting off his head sometime around A.D. 67. So Paul's life, needless to say, despite what some people say about the, God, the, the Apostle Paul, he clearly did not live a charmed life. Now, he lived a blessed life. He lived a, a life that God used in an incredible way, and God was with him. And as we see that, that's where the joy comes from. Uh, but he didn't live a charm life. It wasn't like, boy, Paul, boy, he just—he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Everything he touched went, it just went great. It was wonderful. He had a lot of money. He never had any problems. He, he always slept on the softest bed in the nicest hotels in the nicest cities. Paul just had a great... No, it was just, just the opposite. God, God's work in his life, he, he did not have a charm life. He had a, it was a hard life. So then here's my question. What was the secret to Paul's joy? We read as he's writing from prison, this joy that just comes out in this letter to the Philippians. What is his secret? In spite of his incredible hardships and daily physical suffering, how was it he was able to maintain a continual state of joy? How was he able to say to the Philippians, be glad and rejoice with me? Because Paul, here's the answer. Because Paul understood where joy, real joy, comes from. And that is in a personal, 
relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where the joy came from. Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He didn't say rejoice for the Lord. He didn't say rejoice for what the Lord has done. He didn't say to get He said rejoice in the Lord. He's talking about the relationship with Christ, him being in Christ. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4.10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He understands. That's where the joy comes from, folks, is being in Christ. In reality, the theme of Philippians is not joy. The theme of Philippians is Christ. Amen? If you want to talk about, so as we talk about this joy unspeakable, it's not because there's, there's these seven secrets, you know, somebody will write a book, seven secrets to a joyful life. Well, the seven secrets, if they're there, it's that uh, Christ is all, Christ is all, Christ is all, Christ is all, Christ is all. It, Christ is all. It, it is about our relationship with Christ. Christ is the center of this letter, the focus of this letter, the theme of this letter, and He is the source of joy. No other noun occur, occurs more in Philippians than His name. Christ is used 36 times. Jesus, 21 times. They're combined for Christ Jesus 10 times and Jesus Christ 10 times. In four letters, I, I, I saw the, the number of verses. It's like a hundred, just over 100 verses. It's not a lot of verses in here. Um, all those times, all those references to Christ, all these references to joy, and the joy comes from the relationship with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, we see this, this hymn of Christ as that is called there. And the Christology of the hymn of Christ, it can be said to, be the, to underpin the thinking of everything else in Philippians. So I want you to, if, you, if you're there and you're just turned, well, you're not there because you're in wherever you are. You're somewhere else. You're not there. If you want to turn over to Philippians, I'm going to read this, chapter, chapter uh, 2 in Philippians, verses 6 through 11. You'll be very familiar with this. I'm actually going to read 5 through 11. But it's Christ's example of humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But what did he do? But made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There, look, the gospel's right here. This book, this book of Philippians is, is the most relational book you'll read. It is, it is a deep-hearted writing of his heart to these people. It's not a theology book, so to speak, but it is full of theology. When you, when you read this book, it's not like Paul's dealing with theological issues that the Philippians were having. He's not like saying, all right, brothers, you're doing this. You've got to fix that and change that. And you need... No, he's just sharing his heart. And as he's sharing his heart, he preaches right here. He preaches the gospel. He shares the gospel. Who being in, the found, in, the, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, listen, every knee should bow to those in heaven and to those on earth and to those under the earth. And that every uh, tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so the difference is you'd say, well, well, what if I, you know, what if I just wait? What if I just wait and, and, and you know, if, if we're going to confess him, I'll confess him later. I'll confess him then and I'll, I'll, I'll be good with God because I'm going to confess him then. That's not how this works. Here's, here's the secret of this. If we confess Christ now, if we acknowledge him as Lord, we receive what the gift he's offered us through repentance and faith, that's for salvation. If we wait, if we pass from this life into eternal life without dealing with Christ, we will bow our knee, we will confess with our tongue that he is Lord, but it'll be for our damnation, not our, not our salvation. That's the difference. If you do it here, if you deal with and worship him here as Savior and Lord, there's salvation. If you wait, you will worship him. You will bow the knee. You will confess with the tongue. But it won't be for salvation. It'll be too late. It is what we do in this life. That is the, that's the, the underlying thought of this book. It's all about Jesus. Philippians is about Jesus Christ. Philippians is about people in 
Jesus Christ. Philippians is about people who are in the fellowship of the gospel because they are in Jesus Christ. I can't wait to talk about fellowship. I can't wait to talk about the, what Paul writes about fellowship in here and our understanding of fellowship and, and, and what we're going to see uh, the scriptural truth of fellowship. Philippians is about people whose citizenship is in heaven. That's what this book's about. Harry Ironside said that the theme of this book is Christ is all. He is all. In every chapter, you find that Christ is all. Joy is the natural offspring of a life in Christ. Man, I'd just say, if, if, if you don't have a life of joy and you say you're a believer, but I mean, nothing's changed. I'm as miserable now as I was before I got saved. Then I, I would question whether you got saved. Because when, when Christ comes in and He indwells us, he changes us. And, and when we understand our salvation, we understand what we, what we have through Him that we in no way could ever do for ourselves. There, there is joy that comes in that relationship. If you don't have joy, you may not have Christ because the two are inseparable. Peter wrote in 1 Peter, uh, and I read part of this. I'm going to read the whole thing, but uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, whom having not, having not seen, you love, you love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Folks, when we focus on that, wow, there's where joy comes from, is our focus on Christ. John 15, verse 11, Jesus tells us where joy comes from. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now, that, that's what it is. See, Paul understands Jesus' teaching uh, on, on, his, on his joy, and he understands that it is, it is Jesus' joy. It's not us. See, it's not that, that we want to have joy like his. It's his joy. He says that my joy... He doesn't say that your joy may remain. He says that my joy may remain. So that his joy stays, remains in you, and that your joy may be full. It will be full. It will be overflowing. It will be, it's an abounding joy. Christ had an abounding joy. As you think about Christ, I hope your thoughts of Christ isn't some somber, pale weakling who never smiled and never laughed. Uh, I'm going to tell you, that person... The little kids don't like that person. Who do the little kids like? I like somebody that's joyful. I think Jesus, Jesus obviously was very joyful. And, and, and he would have been fun to be around. And the kids loved him. They wanted to be with him because he was joyful. He was full of joy. And he, he says, this is my joy, that my joy remain in you. Paul's attention, his focus was certainly on, on Jesus he dwelt on his salvation and he focused on his destination. If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, what we just read, and we see that Jesus humbled himself even unto death on the cross. The Father highly exalted him, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what we got to focus on, is what Jesus has done for us. What God the Father did for us by sending his son Jesus, what Jesus did for us as he came and he died in our place. So rejoicing in the Lord means that these truths about Jesus, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do, they personally and profoundly affect us. And if we're affected that way, there will be joy in us. Philippians 1.21, uh, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's clear. His focus was on Christ. For me, my life, to live, it is Christ. It is to, for, for, if I live in this life, this life is Christ. 
His life was about Christ, and his life was full of joy. And he says, for me to die is gain. Why? Because then he gets to go be with Jesus. He gets to go be with the Father. It's even better. Paul knew that God was in control of his life, so he trusted him, and thus he could be joyful in life in every situation. Regardless of what was going on, he trusted God. He knew God was with him. Paul knew that what was ahead for him, and he trusted Jesus to take him safely into the presence of God the Father when he died. Either way, in either place, Paul had joy because Paul had Christ, and Paul focused on Christ. Pastor Aaron, you and Jim can make your way up. Simple invitation this morning. The next week we're going to talk about things that still our joy, still kind of in introduction. We're going to look at those things that still our joy and, and the ways that we can, we can counter, counteract that and avoid that. Um, because as we study this book, we want to learn to have joy. We ought to, as believers, as followers of Christ, we ought to have joy. Sometimes, though, things get in the way. People get in the way. Circumstances get in the way. And, and it's because we've let them. And they've gotten our eyes off of Christ. So this morning, as we uh, have our, our time to respond, our, our invitation this morning, as Pastor Aaron leads us, I'm going to encourage you to spend some time just praying and talking to the Lord. If there's something in your life that you've allowed to steal your joy, to come in between that, if you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus, onto something else, I encourage you to deal with that this morning. Now, I never assume in a, in a group this size that everyone knows the Lord. In fact, there might be someone who's sitting here this morning who's been in church for 25, 30 years. But this morning, God spoke to your heart and said, you know what? You're not saved. You've been deceiving yourself. You've never truly been born again. You've never truly come to me by faith. And today's the day you need to do that. If the Lord's speaking to your heart in that way, when we sing, I'm going to ask you to step out and come down here and let me just take the scriptures and walk you through and introduce you to the Lord Jesus this morning. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day. You don't have to wonder and guess. You can know. The Scripture said these things I have written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. We, we ha- it, 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 he's made it very, very simple. Very simple. But you have to respond. You have to respond to what he's doing in your life. So if you need to be saved this morning, I, I beg you to come down here and let us talk with you. Father, I pray as we, uh, Lord, as we stand in a few moments, as we uh, sing this song uh, of worship and praise to you, Lord, I pray this will truly be a time of reflecting on what we've, what we've heard and what you have spoken in our hearts. Not, not necessarily what I've said, but God, what you have spoken in hearts this morning through your word and through this preaching. God, I pray that we would, we would, we would just be obedient, obedient to respond to your leading. If it's for salvation, God, I pray you'll save souls this day. Do what only you can do now, and we'll praise you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.